way too long. Our industry has been segregated by boys' toys, girls' toys in those fields. I can see that a lot of companies are slowly making the change to non-gendering their toys, saying preschool toys, action figures, and I recognize that change and I appreciate it. I appreciate that they're just calling it what it is. But obviously there's so much work that still needs to be done. I hope I live long enough to see that change. My name is Steven Wakabayashi, and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, mindfulness through the eyes and soul of queer Asian perspectives. This episode, we're joined by an extra special guest, Linda Chan. Linda is a toy designer living in Los Angeles, California, pronouns she, they, also on unceded Tongva land. Linda's work centers around designing inclusive toys to create social change through play. They designed the recent Barbie-inspiring women doll, specifically the doll for Ida B. Wells, and led the design for Creatable World, a gender-inclusive fashion doll line. When they're not designing, Linda enjoys building community with her friends, reading mystery novels, and learning fashion history through vintage clothing. Welcome, Linda. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> really excited to have you today. We have a lot to chat about. I was able to take a look at all your work and everything that you have been doing. And I was like, why haven't I known Linda sooner? And I'm just really <laughs> glad our mutual friend had connected us and really love appreciate the work you're doing. But before we get started, vintage clothing... Tell me about that. What is your fascination about it? And how did that start? I, I've always loved clothing as a kid, just growing up. And I always grew up around secondhand clothing and not necessarily clothing. That was like what I wanted to wear. And obviously fashion is like a form of self-expression. So as soon as I had a job and made my own money. I really started looking into clothes and vintage clothing. I particularly love because I get to see a lot of ways, especially like hand finishes on clothing that you would normally never see like these days, unless it's like at a very expensive price point. But vintage clothing is more sustainable. It's already been around for 50, 60 years. And I love learning about history and trends and designers through fashion, like through vintage clothing. So I just love collecting it. Like there are like holy grail pieces that I always want to acquire. For example, Johnny Versace is a designer that I've always um, admired. I remember my mom telling me when I was a kid when he was murdered, like in front of his mansion. And I always remember that as a kid. It's, it gives me the creeps. I watched that like Netflix show and <laughs> it like really creeped me out. But mm. yeah, as a kid, what I was told was that he was murdered because he was gay. Mm. And that was something I like never forgot. My mom said he was super talented as I was older and like finding myself in these stores and this space. 
like, I always wanted to acquire Johnny Versace design. And I did a couple years ago, like one of the most exciting things. It's like a red, bright red silk, like an evening wear dress Ooh. at the bottom. <laughs> and best places to shop in Los Angeles for vintage clothing. Yes, there's, oh, there's so many. I just, there's a lot of vintage, uh, what is it, conventions. And that, I remember going to one, obviously pre-pandemic. One is from the up to the 1920s, like 1960s. So it's very like mid-century modern art deco. And then there's another one I like going to. And they have more current and more modern style of vintage clothing. A lot of like designer pieces as well. But you can get, for example, like a Chanel blouse for $120. Whereas wow. if I were to go out and shop, I would buy a blouse for what, 60 bucks? Yeah. Maybe. And then it would fall apart after a couple of wears. So I'd much rather invest in something that's double the price, but also has been around longer than I've been alive and obviously will last much longer. Yeah, that's so fascinating. No, I just read your bio now and I was like, oh, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my little like nerd thing that I love. I just, <laughs> I love vintage clothing. Yes. And uh, this is a question that I like to ask all my guests is especially as we are still in the thick of COVID. It's like after yeah. two years have passed and just so much has happened. Just one, how are you doing at this time, especially given COVID and restrictions or it seems like it's ever so changing. How are you doing? Yeah, overall, I'm doing well. Um, I'm very grateful for my friends, my family, good food and the Los Angeles weather. I'm trying not to be so anxious about all the changes um, given COVID with mask restrictions on, off, it's always changing. Just trying to keep myself safe, like being masked up, whether or not there is a mask mandate, uh, just to keep people who do live with like immunocompromised folks, young kids who can't get vaccinated and elderly folks as well. So it's always keeping those people in mind and trying to stay sane through it all. Any lessons or learnings that came out of the last two years with just things that have helped you, especially in navigating such a tumultuous world and time. I guess I'm remembering that it's okay to take a break from sadness in those moments of joy and cherishing them and also recognizing what my body needs and honoring that resting as much as I can. <laughs> yes. Resting is so important. Do you follow the nap ministry? I do. What are your thoughts? I love it, particularly because it just reframes rest in so much more of a radical lens. And it is the way that it's set up. It's like, what's the tagline? It's rest resistance or uh, there's a few. It was almost like the active lens, right? Like resting can be an active behavior that we engage with that prioritizes ourselves, our community, our wholeness. But yeah, has it brought up anything for you? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I love the NAP ministry because we're like working at a corporation. It's always, and obviously in capitalism, it's productivity, right? That's mm -hmm. what they value. But 
being burnt out. I was so burnt out a few years ago. I'm just barely recovering from that now, but realizing, or at least being told that resting is okay. And that's what you need. So like affirming, given that like in capitalism, rest isn't really looked upon as productive. Rest is looked upon as lazy. You know, that was what I needed just (laughs) to hear and see that rest is radical. You need it for yourself and you can't show up and be the best version of yourself if you're not taken care of and if your body isn't well. Absolutely. And I'd love to start the conversation actually talking a little bit about that, like the burnout you face. What led you towards a burnout? What were you doing? And if anything came out of it in as far as insights, but maybe let's start with the first of just what led you to feeling burnt out? My burnout was I had focused all of my energy and my time on work. I would work like 12 hours a day, like every waking moment I thought about work. And, and it was like specifically the project I was working on. I loved it. I was super passionate about it. So of course, every moment, every experience, like going out, going shopping, getting groceries, it was all, Mm -hmm. okay, what do I see? And how can I implement what I've seen into my designs? Mm -hmm. And doing that for about two years obviously takes its toll. You're working almost 12 hours a day, every waking moment, Mm. and sometimes on the weekends, then not allowing myself to take a break. Like even if I was, let's say I took a vacation, I'd want to spend time with my family, um, which is restful in another way. But as an introvert, like I need time alone to do absolutely nothing and talk to nobody. And then I can recharge my battery, completely ignoring my needs for those two years. I was just so burnt out. I felt like I was always chasing something. What are you chasing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure yet. I always realize like I'm always down for an adventure. I will always say yes. This is something that I learned is I don't know how to say no. I will always say yes to something. If someone, Hey, you want to do this? Hey, you want to do a podcast sure and i'm like what is it on you want to say no 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 actually i was a huge fan of your work and i've been following you for a while so when you you asked i was like oh my god but i feel that it's we're so (laughs) likewise starstruck with all your work but especially as asian people right like when are we taught to ever say no to things coupled with community coupled with filial piety coupled with respecting the elder above any means even if they say awful things to you it's don't point them out don't call them out like just not accept Mm -hmm. smile and nod smile and nod yep and i think especially living within the west it's so hard because it's really around being a little bit more Forceful is not the best word to say, but being a little bit more outward with what we need and we don't get things unless we ask for it. And a big part of it, and this is especially in my personal struggle, is understanding that I have to say no, especially in the Western culture, because whatever that comes out of no, whether it's rest or prioritizing myself, my projects or prioritizing other people over what it is that's happening at the time, doesn't come naturally, that isn't offered 
up freely. And I wonder, thinking about how that applies to yourself, does this resonate? Were you ever, <laughs> were you ever taught the power of no through anyone? And maybe what is inspiring you to stand up for yourself and say no in certain instances? Yes, all of that resonates 100%. <laughs> Learning, being comfortable with mm-hmm. saying no um, is obviously something that I'm still learning and trying to practice every day mm-hmm. is setting those boundaries and like setting those hard boundaries, not just soft ones that can be bent. That's really important as well as saying no. We live and we practice and we see how it, (laughs) how that goes. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's go a little bit further into your work and we'd just love to maybe backtrack a few steps of just understanding you're burning, feeling burnt out with all this work and all this stuff that you're doing. I am so fascinated by being a toy designer. I'm in the design world making websites and apps, but I have no concept or clue as to what exactly a toy designer does. <laughs> I would love for you to share what is the day in the life and what are you doing as a toy designer? Sure. As a toy designer, my experience has mainly been fashion dolls, dolls, um, so I can talk about the process of bringing a doll to life. Designs always start with research, a concept, and a sketch. And once that gets greenlit, then I've worked with like a hair designer, face designer, sculptor. Um, the sculptor, obviously, it's the foundation of the doll, whether the body, the face. Um, working really closely with my sculptor to like capture the features that we're looking for that would be for the design of the project and then working with a hair designer and a face designer on what hair textures I want, what the hair color is going to be that matches the skin tone, and then working with my face designer parallelly to make sure okay, the eyebrow color needs to match the hair color, what eye color, what lip color look good on the skin tone, and working with a model shop to build all of those. If there's fashion involved, I'll work with soft goods, seamstresses. I'll do like a fashion flat telling them and communicating like this is a material I'm looking for to use. This is how I want the clothing to drape on the doll body. And this is a style. And so just working really closely with these um, artisans is actually my favorite part of just seeing how it comes to life and working with people who are specialized in those fields to bring it to life. And obviously there's marketing, there's packaging involved, product engineer. And so those are all the people that I work with as a toy designer that help bring a product to market. You definitely touched on a lot more than just like (laughs) designing the toy, but really thinking about the fashion aspect and designing. I think what's really interesting too is working to bring forth dolls that haven't really had been expressed just to put it lightly within a very white centered institution especially many of these big toy companies within the united states and i wanted to ask and for you to share with the audience too when we were first chatting you had talked a little bit about maybe shifting the way in which people were working and having some of the research done to create dolls that were more inclusive. And I wanted to ask if you could share a little bit about how you changed up that process a little bit so that you can make more inclusive dolls for the community. So 
in my design process when designing dolls, part of my process is to make sure that the dolls I design are respectful of the different races they reflect. I'm very mindful of the way eye color, lip color, look on the skin tone. And my job as a designer is to make sure the unsayable is seen. So whether someone has the vocabulary or the understanding, they may not be able to articulate why something looks right or something is a little bit off. And we're surrounded by beauty every day and it comes in many different faces, forms and walks of life. So I want any doll that I design to celebrate all that beauty and representing diversity in design should highlight the uniqueness of a certain race, but not make it the only defining factor. So if you carelessly place emphasis on specific features of respective races, it can perpetuate damaging stereotypes. Mm. And so something that I do is I check in with my friends at work of the dolls I've designed or toys I've designed is if this is something that makes them feel seen or someone that they know represents someone that they know in their life. And one of the reasons I do that is to, is that I'm designing toys for their inner child to listen to their lived experiences and be able to use my work to create something that allows them to feel seen and perhaps heal their inner child of wanting to be seen because I know that they're not alone in feeling this way. And recently I was looking back on my career and I realized like my entire career has been about designing toys, like mm-hmm. fulfilling my inner child that I've loved to play with as a kid, which was not planned at all. But I thought that was an interesting mm-hmm. alignment in the universe. I want to first start with also the process again. Like some of the things you had mentioned reminds me of this story for Insecure, right? The HBO show. And it wasn't until that show where they had primarily like a full cast of all these different communities within the black community, right? Not just like within certain backgrounds, lineages within the larger black community context, but just a variety of skin tones. And it wasn't until they also had black lighting designers or people who really understood how to light up uh, a more melanin rich skin across the full spectrum and also have it so that others who have more lighter complexion and darker complexion could be in the same frame with each other. It's like the crazy part is this was like revolutionary when they were doing it because the typical movie, typical TV show set, typical media set just really never had the capabilities or the expertise to understand how to do that exactly. And I'm wondering, especially in your work, as you talk about researching, engaging with friends and showing them some of the process so that they can give you feedback. I wonder if there's any tactical or tangible advice that you might be able to provide other people who may be working on stuff similar to you, whether it's a toy doll or they're working with a media, especially with people who have a more variety of melanin slash different representation than we had seen. 
in whichever industry they're working in. With each project and learn as much as I can about the topic or the community so I can learn everything I need to know about that. And I also keep in mind of the details, keep note of the details that I see within my research so I can infuse it into the design. And this is how I make sure that my work is inclusive and authentic and representation. Because as a designer, you could keep designing products or doing whatever you're doing and just follow what's been previously set where you can find little ways to push designs to be more inclusive. And I don't want anyone to tokenize people and be like, since you're this person, let me get your thoughts. It's more, okay, you take thoughts and learnings from a group of people, not just one person. And then as you are the expert in your field, you like take those learnings and you see what works best within your project. It's not like you get feedback from 10 people and half of them go one way and half of them are the other way. And now you're torn. It's what works best with this product. Where is their feedback coming from? Do these people have any internal biases they haven't addressed? And how do I design something that is mindful and addresses all of these concerns and comments? but also make sure that everyone feels seen, which I know is going to be at different levels. But as long as I can make a product that allows someone to feel seen and Mm -hmm. have that kind of positive impact, then to me, I think I've Mm -hmm. done a good job. Do you see designers, especially ones you work with, stumble anywhere else within the process? I'm going to say this. (laughs) I think... Uh, there's this book called Design Justice, <laughs> and I highly recommend. Book. <laughs> yeah, I love it so much. And I read it after I had designed Creative World, but it was everything that I was already thinking of or had tried to practice in that process. And so it's a book that I highly recommend all designers to read, regardless of what industry you're in. As long as you're creative, it's a must read. But I think with the social uprising in 2020 and people Mm -hmm. realizing that there has been systemic racism and biases in every aspect, of the world. I think a lot of people are coming to terms on what their biases are and they're actively trying to be better about it, better people, better designers. And that's something that I recognize and I appreciate the the people and the designers that are doing. I love to spin a little bit now. So we've talked a little bit about your work and there's so many more to touch on, but you had mentioned a little bit of as you're growing up, this was not something you had seen. And all you're doing uh, right now is really to make your childhood dreams come true into fruition and reality. And I wanted to ask you, just rewinding all the way towards your childhood, what was your experience like first growing up in a household? And you mentioned it was all the way in Alabama <laughs> where it first started. <laughs> Just as an Asian person, a queer Asian person, what was that experience like? I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, as my dad attended undergrad there. 
And I only lived in Alabama for maybe about a year. I don't remember it, but I've lived in about three to four cities by the time I was four years old. So growing up, it always felt like I was in limbo. I didn't have any like constant childhood friends. It was just me and my younger sisters. But when I was about five years old, we settled in Bay Area, California. And as an Asian American, I can say I was very lucky to have been raised there as there's a large Asian population and a plethora of Asian grocery stores. And as an adult, like my sisters and I would ask our parents what it was like growing up in the South or having grown up in Taiwan and then moving to the South college. And it was hard. Obviously, our parents are not going to tell us the full extent of hardships that they've dealt with and they've experienced, but they'll also downplay like racist encounters that they've had as well. And that kind of just breaks my heart, like hearing about it, because we know how bad it could be. But as a kid, I never really felt like I fit in. I was extremely shy as a kid, and it was also my second language, which made it really hard um, to make friends. But even as I grew up, I could never connect with people or find people that had experiences, similar backgrounds, or thoughts that were relatable. But as an adult, as I read more books and articles, it's been really affirming and validating um, to find the vocabulary to match to the internal feelings and emotions that I've had for a really long time. And so learning more about gender identity and identifying on the asexuality spectrum, even today, I'm still learning more about myself in depth. I choose to live my life outside of the binary definitions of what society expects us to be, which means allowing myself to be authentically myself and unapologetically. And I don't need to look externally for permission to speak up or to have my own thoughts and voice them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the way we use the word queer, especially on this podcast, is just anything that is not falling under the heteronormative structure. And I think we sometimes forget that it's not just being gay, being lesbian, there's a whole umbrella underneath that. I think that's a lot of people argue that like it's one or the other or one of the many, but I always say it's the beauty of having a myriad of these experiences and everyone being able to discover what it is that truly resonates with them. And I'm curious, was there anyone that was really influential? in growing up, maybe seeing yourself represented in them, or was there anything in media or any particular book that helped to affirm your identity? Actually, it's an experience. Oh. And it wasn't someone that affirmed it. Went to high school and there was a girl who was very religious. Mm and very anti-gay. Everything was whatever the Bible said. And so much so that that made me question everything. I was like, it doesn't say that gay marriage isn't allowed in the Bible. It doesn't say any of these things that you're saying, but you so strongly believe in that and you have so much hatred against these people and there's no reason to. Mm. And just because 
you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're better than anyone else because you're also a very mean person. So what makes you think that you're better than people just because you've read the Bible and you think that gay marriage is a sin? Just meeting this person and going to school with them, that made me, I, I guess you can say that was start me questioning like everything really helpful because that made me write a paper in college on how gay marriage in the Bible was like a lie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did your family <laughs> grow up religious? No, my parents, I guess you could say they are. They're Buddhist, but they're more spiritual. They're not like, I don't know what the term is, but they're not super by the book religious. So that also has been really helpful lately. Mm. Growing up, I would go to temples mm-hmm. and events like that. And I never really gave it much thought, but as I get older, I actually find myself reverting back to that and visiting mm-hmm. temples, attempting to meditate when things are a little bit rough. So it's been interesting how from the end then we come back. Yeah. It's a big benefit to life, right? We oftentimes <laughs> yes. stray away from a lot of stuff, things that really mean a lot to us, our own identities, our parents, things that even like career, <laughs> we oftentimes boomerang back, right, to what we really deeply innately connected with especially as a kid and this is where a lot of people say sometimes the most enlightened people on the planet are babies and children because we don't have the dissonance around us that define things that we have to do just because we have to do it our social context is behind the decisions we make and especially for us in the asian community it's like being a doctor or being a lawyer it's like we don't have that drive to be that until we go through all these layers of conditioning and and uh-huh. for some it's almost like the rite of passage where it's i can't be a good asian unless i am a doctor yes. or a lawyer straight a's yeah exactly like straight like who cares it's like it's an academic system that's <laughs> rooted in quantitative measure of all of us but it's, we're so far beyond it but anyway i digress but it's so fascinating even like with your career right it's like finding this boomerang that's happening going into college for something so different and then coming out and leading more into your childhood aspirations your childhood dreams and we just talked a little bit about this aspiration that many asian people are placed into becoming this quintessential doctor or lawyer what did you study in college and what was that even like to convince your parents that you didn't want to follow this typical path? Growing up, I did a lot, but it was all academic based Mm -hmm. math. I was not good at math. So they made me do it even more. If you're bad at it, so you just have to do more of it. (laughs) I'm like shaking my head, but I'm like, it makes sense. No, not really. (laughs) If you do it enough times, you will like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In my career, obviously, I didn't take that route. Yeah. But for as long as I could remember, like I could pick up a pencil or read. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be creative. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be in art and design. And I didn't take any private art lessons growing up. That was something that we couldn't afford because we spent it all on math tutoring for me. 
really instrumental in my start as a designer is mm-hmm. my high school teacher, Lee Akamichi. Mm-hmm. And he was a fantastic teacher. Not only did he just teach art, but he taught us to explore and experiment with different mediums, different art styles, and use art to express ourselves. And I really wanted to go to art school, but this wasn't a career field that my parents were familiar with. Mm -hmm. So it took a lot of convincing to do. And Ock met with my parents outside of his work hours to discuss and answer. Yeah. Any questions that they had, he's wonderful. And what he told me afterwards was he asked my dad, like, so do you like your job? And my dad turned around and was like, no, I hate my job. And that was another conversation. And I had no idea. I didn't know that my dad did not like, but as I'm older, it makes sense. I understand where they're coming from. Like back then I had to show my parents how passionate and serious I was about pursuing a design career. And at the time it was really difficult because I knew there was no room for failure and taking the chance to go to an art school on student loans. Mm -hmm. And I'm the oldest. So that's a huge Mm -hmm. step. But looking back, I realized like my parents just wanted to make sure that I chose a career I really loved and that was secure. As I reflect back, it's not that my parents weren't supportive of me at all. It just wasn't shown in the form of affirmative words. Mm. They showed their support through acts of service. They drove my friend Alice and I all over the city to buy our supplies, print our portfolios, and drive us an hour away to have our portfolios reviewed before we applied to art colleges. And just that like physical support, because we obviously, we were underage at the time we applied for college. So just that support really meant a lot. And through the years that I've been working after graduating, my parents have been less anxious about my career choice, even though they've never said the words, I'm proud of you. I can see that through their actions. My dad, uh, waiting up at night for the announcement of Creatable World to launch, watching the advertisement over and over again, driving my family crazy. And just like my mom bookmarking every link that my work or where I mentioned. And I really cherish these actions and my parents because I know that they're proud of me and I don't need them to say those words to me. I can see it in the way that they respond when I show them my work. And recently my dad told me an interaction he had with a coworker. Mm. Um, one of his coworkers showed my dad some drawings his daughter did and won a drawing contest. And he said that his daughter was interested in the arts. And my dad responded telling him that a career in art and design was possible and talked about his learnings, getting together portfolios. He talked about my career and I am so proud of my dad. So that was really touching. That's a 180 moment. Yeah. It was really touching seeing how hard it was for me to even Mm -hmm. get started in that field and for him to just turn around and share the awareness and his learnings. And I hope that if she does choose to pursue a career, in art and design that it's not as difficult as mine i can see that the story is just really resonating with you it's just this story always gets me really emotional that's the interesting part about having asian parents right where they are never taught 
the right words or the vocabulary to articulate feelings. And it's almost like the sadness between intergenerational communication across communities with different diasporas, right? Where we're here raised in the West and we understand Western context, Western language, so articulate that we can put precisely into words what we're thinking and saying. And for them, learning English much later in life, but also being Asian is also very stoic, right? It's can't show your weakness. Don't let anyone know you're feeling sad. (laughs) And imagine the toll that takes on our parents and the way that they allow their expressions to be put out into the world. But I must have imagined seeing all these things come to fruition now, or just even seeing simple as like them bookmarking every link, saving all the things. And the funny part is they probably still are like trying to wrap their mind. What is Linda doing? Oh, yeah. They don't, I don't think they know what I do in my job. <laughs> they saw a video of me brushing doll hair and yeah. now that's what they think I do. They're like, oh, how's your job? Just brushing doll hair all day and playing with toys. I'm like, it's yeah. not like that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just the love that you see is them just relentlessly bookmarking and saving everything, even though they don't fully understand And I think it's beautiful. Now he's just like valiantly defending design as a career. (laughs) Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I know. I'm just like at a loss for words. My Mm. parents were infamously known (laughs) where I grew up for not letting me go to art school, for not Mm. wanting me to go to art school. To the point where there was a few classes. I graduated high school and there's a few classes like under like younger. One of the students also took a studio art class with Ak and my mom like mentioned in passing that I was a toy designer and she was like oh so you are the parents that wouldn't let the toy designer go to college and when I heard that I was like oh my god like random people know my parents as that Mm. and so want to like take that and correct it that it's not Mm. that they're not supportive at all. They just weren't supportive verbally. And we often see in, I guess, like mainstream media, but they're supportive in other ways. Mm. And now that's completely changed. It's a learning process. And even for ourselves, I think the beautiful part is we are brought into this world to sometimes help grow our parents Mm -hmm. in ways that they haven't had imagined before. And sometimes for that lesson, it's very nerve wracking, scary, brings up a lot of vulnerabilities. And I think above it all, the testament of their love for you is in the fact that they're willing to change a lot of these preconceived, deeply rooted beliefs. And now the way I describe it to a lot of people is imagine us at the age of 80, 90, right? Like how rooted in our ways would we be? How rooted in the mm-hmm. way of thinking would we be? And sometimes we forget that as people age and get older, the understanding of the world becomes so precise to what they had experienced and it becomes these unmovable truths. It's not saying it's right or wrong by any means, but sometimes we fail to recognize and create the space for compassion 
in understanding that. And I think a big part of at least my journey has been understanding and realizing that people also have a myriad of opportunities laid before them that shape these beliefs. Guarantee also maybe with like your parents, they wouldn't have been able to go to art school, design school, even if they wanted to. And it's just one of those crazy things that in the, my work, helping to accelerate queer BIPOC people into the creative industries, a lot of education, especially with minority populations of a thriving success that is possible with a design career. And also the awful truth is also how the United States as a whole, right, or Western countries really don't prioritize the arts in a way that is shown to be (laughs) something that is really important. Oftentimes what we see right now is just this heavy emphasis on tech, right? Tech as a power, tech as a knowledge, tech as a skill, a trade. And while one can have a lot of technical expertise and knowledge and be passionate about it, I think it's the myriad of experiences that really make our world a wonderful place to be. It's celebrating and recognizing what makes us all unique and that we have some commonalities. It's just seeing that and respecting that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Yes. And especially around that, I want to go back to your work, your wonderful, amazing work. I'm just curious, like after you had published it, what was the reception of your work? Was there any experiences that are very memorable to you, especially in publishing that work that stands out, that made having done the work feel so worthwhile to you? It was a project that really invigorated me and it challenged me in ways I didn't expect. And obviously I learned so much through this experience. It was really exciting to utilize every brain cell I had and incorporating everything that I'm passionate about, every skill my experiences has taught me. So like I love work, like I absolutely loved every second working on this project, even though there's so much blood, sweat, tears, like literally it burned me out. But it was also very isolating and exhausting and a lot of emotional labor. And my experience has taught me in how to present information to people to educate them on topics that they have no lived experience with. Mm -hmm. At the time, I didn't really have any experience in educating people in that way. Mm -hmm. Like I was a designer. And so my biggest hurdle was trying to open people's existing perception of feminine and masculine styles, like as well intentioned one is about the idea of a gender inclusive doll. Many challenges regarding how deep clothing, hair, and other gender signifiers are ingrained in people's minds. For example, like for way too long, the color pink has been associated with girls and blue for boys. And even clothing categories aren't sold by pants or shirts, but by gender. So as a society, we're still at the very early stages of breaking gender social constructs. Oh, I love that. Love that as a thing to challenge with creatable world. I, I find this so interesting. And just what are some things that maybe as you worked on this project that you discovered and you're like, oh, wow, like this is deeply ingrained uh, binary system that we've constructed that we are creating 
within, especially across like dolls, fashion, all these other industries. At the time, they're still hated, but like girls toy aisle, boys toy aisle. Mm. And it was like, okay, then where does this go? If this goes in the doll aisle, someone who wants to play with dolls, but is afraid of Mm. the perception of pink will they even see that and also learning how to market this and who it's targeting and how language revolves around that and how to make sure you word it in a way where you don't exclude people that was also Mm. really interesting learning as well because that's how even like amazon walmart they segmented by gender Right, like boys' toys, girls' toys. At the end, it was still called a doll because a doll action figure, they're both a humanoid figure with joints. In the end, we just decided it was a gender neutral fashion doll, which I think is very descriptive of what it is. But I also understand there are people still think dolls are for girls, even though it's for anyone, really, who says that you can't play with an action figure if you're a girl or Mm -hmm. a dollhouse if you're a boy. Mm -hmm. I think for way too long, our industry has been segregated by boys' toys, girls' toys in those fields. I can see that a lot of companies are slowly making the change to non-gendering their toys, saying preschool toys, action figures. And I recognize that change and I appreciate it. I appreciate that they're just calling it what it is. But obviously there's so much work that still needs to be done. I hope I live long enough to see that change. My own curiosity, what's the difference between a doll and an action figure? Essentially, it's just an articulated figure, plastic figure. Sometimes they have sculpted clothing. Sometimes they have softed clothing. The history behind the action figure was that they... It specifically so the words would sound more masculine and be easier to market that's to what i would assume too yeah. it's like pretty much the same thing like barbie can engage with action too barbie is very much an action figure as much as you have all the marvel dolls mm-hmm. right <laughs> it's yes. same thing potato potato it's just for so long we've rooted ourselves in this dichotomy this binary system but sometimes we forget that by removing the binary we actually allow people to freely make so many more choices there's a lot of people who argue for the binary but and a lot of their argument is through having a pride of the binary but where i argue with that is we can still have pride over your own identity it's just recognizing that it sits with a myriad identities which i think is a a big opportunity for many people to learn and i think their resistance to that is their fear of the unknown they don't know anything beyond the binary like Mm -hmm. in their world so all of that is scary to them and so forth it's all based on their fear and it's irrational and they mix their irrational thoughts with things that are actual fears and they just mix that up and create a false narrative and it's just so evil i think it's not predictable but it's so engineered evil that they do that what exactly are you so afraid of if you were just open to learning about something that you didn't know five minutes ago Mm -hmm. how is that going to hurt you and 
it's wild to me that some people are so afraid of learning and evolving. They just want to stay the same forever. And I think that we should always be evolving as human beings and as creatives as well, because that's how we become our best selves. I think how we find our best selves. And how fear is monetized. There's a big machine behind it, right? The whole news system. When choosing between headlines, fear is going to monetize tremendously. And even the way, I think design justice puts it so well in terms of how fear has been engineered as a part of our technical platforms. Another book that I really love is Ruined by Design which talks about a lot of the social platforms that we have and how they're also engineered to use fear for clicks, for engagement. For example, Twitter, allowing Donald Trump to be there during his tenure, but also even more than that, to promote some of his tweets egregiously, understanding that that resulted in a lot of clicks, whether it was... Donald Trump's followers or the media sensationalizing his tweets and going crazy. Here is free press for a platform where he's doing all this. And then finally deplatformed him upon his finishing of his presidency. What perfect timing. And so I think the fear that we see that don't allow people to expand it beyond the binary we see is just so much happening in the world around us. And sometimes the reminder that I like to give myself is some of that fear is unfounded, especially when it doesn't have a direction of where it wants to take us with that fear, how we can dissolve the fear, how we can bring up solutions, how we can connect with one another, how we can reunite in peace. And when they don't have those things, to me, sometimes what's helped me is telling myself, I don't need to focus on this because the intention behind this piece was really never meant to go anywhere except for quell the fear to incubate that because people are clicking on it. And a little bit of your work also, a lot of your work actually, (laughs) trickles into activism (laughs) and Mm -hmm. speaking on behalf of experiences, especially the Asian experience. And what I'd like to maybe get your thought is, especially during this time, we've had Stop Asian Hate running for a good amount of a year, but there's just so much still happening in terms of reminder of past pains, right? We just celebrated the one-year anniversary of the shooting that happened in Atlanta, where Asian women were just the target of very violent acts. Mm -hmm. And across all of it too, we still see a lot of violence perpetuated towards Asian communities. And one of the heartbreaking images that I saw was the the line for pepper spray, for free pepper spray. Did you see this one where it was just so long? And what just made me really sad was just all these people feeling the need to get pepper spray and waiting in that line because of just where they were at mentally. But I just wanted to ask you, just what are your thoughts around this whole situation? And if anything is coming up for you? There's so much violence, trauma, and grief. And, you know, it's so tiring and emotionally draining. Like, also feeling unheard and unseen. Someone recently brought up Stop Asian Hate as a past thing. And I was like, it's still going on. There's been, like, recent murders of Asian women. Mm -hmm. And it's 
it's still happening. It's not a past thing. It quickly corrects themselves. It's so sad to see like the apathy in other people, how like none of this phases them. And I remember at the start of the pandemic, I had been traveling and this was before the mask mandate, but just being in an airport and knowing that COVID was around, I would wear a mask and I would see the way people looked at me or Mm. reacted around me and even walking around my neighborhood before I just spent all my time at work but this was one of the first times I had taken the time to walk in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. and then I realized I was one of very few POC living there I was like oh yeah I don't feel comfortable in this space don't feel comfortable walking around I would carry like pepper spray and I would just carry that in my backpack just to feel safe and Mm. I would just get a few comments for being paranoid, but so dismissive. It's, this is a real fear. And we didn't realize that until the height that stop Asian hate. But with all the sadness, we have to remember to center joy. And it's okay to take a break from sadness and heal through art. Because like joy and art is what's going to sustain us through this movement. Yeah, I went to a safe space organized by my friend Akemi. Mm-hmm. And... It was seeing all these people come together to find community and support amongst each other. That was so beautiful. Seeing strangers help each other in times of needs, just being really supported emotionally. That was something so beautiful to come out of us meeting together at a time of grief that I cherish. Kemi put together a an event at Yang Ban Society in Los Angeles. It was right after the murders of Michelle. So it was just getting mm-hmm. together and having a safe space for Asian fans mm-hmm. to talk about and talk about their fears and also like a healing space as mm-hmm. well. Charlotte, Lotus, and the Sea of Fire gave a talk and that was very healing Mm. that's beautiful it's it goes back to rest as resistance right joy Mm -hmm. and acts of liberation through the lens of our own personal empowerment and liberation is really all another form of fighting against the systems of prejudice and justice and while we can hold space for anger and desire for change we can also equally hold space for our own personal liberation and joy and again like social media does not do a good job right of dictating which media comes through our feed because it often is the one that is inducing fear inducing anger inducing all these really difficult emotions because oftentimes right difficult emotions linger a little bit longer because they're difficult in nature versus a joyous happy moment is quick because we understand and we resonate and we lean into it sometimes it's a good reminder just to allow ourselves and give us the permission to chase experience live our joyous lives and that and this is an example that i've been saying to people too is us living joyously and finding our own liberation also gives permission to others who are like us to also find their joy and liberation and to not forget how powerful that is 
-hmm. by having the permission or giving others permission, we end up creating a cascading change that could potentially impact so many others, not just ourselves. (laughs) I totally resonate with you in terms of a lot of folks, especially outside of the Asian community. We have a lot of amazing people, including yourself, all these different newscasters, really putting themselves out to, to try to bring this into the forefront. And what I also remind people is, let's think about all the people putting in this work, right? How amazing is that? People in our community tirelessly putting in the forefront of their own agenda so that we can have the voice and the space to really get our messages heard. And question for you is, how are you centering joy and liberation at this point? At this current time, I've been visiting Peter Lai, who is a queer Asian fashion designer in Los Angeles. So I'm visiting the studio. I had some visions of some pieces I've wanted to incorporate into my wardrobe. And just learning and creating with him has been has brought me so much joy. I really miss this creative outlet. And I really love meeting Peter and meeting someone who loves and enjoys fashion as much as I do. It's been a lot of fun. And to me, that brings me a lot of joy. And seeing how Peter is unapologetically himself is also something that really inspires me. And so a question for you is, what's next for you? After you've done all this, I know you're making a bit of a career transition right now. What's next Mm -hmm. up for you? I'm just rolling with the changes in my life and embracing them, being a part of some new projects that I'm really excited about. And that's been a really refreshing change because for me, I don't believe in it. And it's hard for me to give 100% of my energy into that project. And yeah, I'm just learning to take it slow, not trying to do too much because I don't want to be burnt out again in that way. Recently, I've come out of this anxiety and depression low. And so it's been so nice to not feel that heaviness. And it was like heaviness I've been feeling for a very long time. So I'm just enjoying that at the moment. That sounds amazing. Thanks. Yes. And last question for you. Is there any last note you want to share with our listeners? Any last takeaways, lessons? I'd love to thank all of y'all for listening this whole time. I hope you guys find inspiring ways to infuse activism within the work that you do in your everyday life, whether that's joining your employee resource group at the company you work at to create events that educate and celebrate or volunteering at your local food bank. I hope you all find ways to push the norm and push the boundaries and get into good trouble, as John Lewis says. I love that. Good trouble. Where would we be without good trouble? (laughs) That's my favorite kind of trouble. (laughs) 
how can listeners find and follow you? I can be found on Instagram at little.linda. And my website is little-linda.com. <laughs> so check that out. I'd love to thank you again, Linda, for showing up, spending some time with me this afternoon to talk a little bit about your amazing projects and work that has really transformed so many people's expectations of seeing themselves not being wrapped.